and, and that's what's important about meditation. People forget about, they get involved in mechanics. So it's a love affair. It's all a love affair. It's a divine love affair. When you go into meditation, it's about loving God. And if you love God, you love yourself, you love your neighbors, you love your enemies, most especially. You love those people that need it the most. So when we meditate, don't seek anything. Don't seek enlightenment. Don't seek peace. Don't seek things. Just give love. And in the end, what you're really seeking will find you. You don't have to go look it. Hello, this is Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan. Welcome to The Dr. E Show, a show exploring the frontiers of our human possibilities in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living, so that together we can awaken the best of ourselves and create our most joyful and fulfilling lives. Welcome to part two of our adventure with Reverend Bill McDonald. If you haven't already, we recommend listening to part one first so that you can get the most out of this fascinating conversation. Now, without further ado, please enjoy. But it's been prediction after prediction after prediction. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, in the prediction, one of the predictions was, this is when you're going to die. They said, we normally don't tell people that. You know, but you, you're on the short end of this thing. There's only so much. I mean, you're, this is short, right? This is now, this is what, 10 years now, right? So it's a short end. And some people have some flexibility of willpower. Like if we tell a young person that they're going to die of, you know, lung disease, they'll stop smoking, you know, they'll, they'll exercise, they'll change the diet. And then they could perhaps change their alternate future. No, that's not the case. But here's when you're going and you're going to leave in a, a rainbow body and you're out of here. And so I was given a time frame. Uh, the only chance of changing that basically was if Lord Shiva, the form of Babaji or your guru, decides that your work is needed still, not for you, for family, for doing stuff, but the work of spreading love and Kriya Yoga, if you're needed for that and that's determined by them, then you maybe get an extension, but it's not for your personal joy and not for your achievements or you know to do something that's for the work. So that's what I was told. So lately I've been kind of in a hurry. <laughs> so in 2006, 2006, I went to Europe and I was giving talks in Wales and England and stuff. And I come back, I was gone 55 days. And I came back really sick, having all kinds of medical problems. I got off the airplane, ended up in the hospital. And uh, they told me I had to have heart procedure done. And I had, I was in all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it was dangerous and everything. And then I get a call from this astrologer friend on eight hours before my heart surgery and says, you know, don't have it done tomorrow. According to the astrological chart, that's your death day tomorrow. Don't do it. Don't do it, right? And I go, I go, what's the heck of a, that's a heck of a bedside manner. You tell a guy eight hours for, no, no, I'm warning you. Your chart's never been this bad. This is it. I mean, it's, if you do it, I'm warning you. And I go, no, it ain't going to happen. So obviously I've been a spoiler alert. I didn't die. I'm here. <laughs> but that probably was correct reading. I'll let it go at that. But that was probably a very correct reading. And it showed up on his chart as, this is the day you're dying. And I told him, no, I'm not. Because I knew I still, had, I still had a spiritual bucket list. Not for me, but for other people. I had to finish this alchemy book. I had to do some talks. I had to do some videos. There's still some people out there. My grandkids, I'm stilling things in them. Someday they'll look back and watch this interview and realize that I'm here for them. And uh, so that was my naughty palm reading, but that's when you start reading alchemy, which that, that story's in there, uh, there's probably a hundred and some stories that are just out there. Uh, in my other book, you'll find that 
two body experiences where I, I'm actually seeing myself coming back into my own body. I've had people for years, let me, let me kind of throw this out there because I could be a crazy man. All right, so I was, you always have to keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, maybe it's crazy. He's a nice guy, but you know, Bill, you know, he's an Irishman, you know, they talk. All right, so I've had people for decades, and I mean decades since I've been a teenager, tell me that, oh, I, you came to me in a dream. You were, you, were my, you were giving me advice when I was a kid. You were there. I mean, story after story, people tried to commit suicide, and I stopped suicides. I got them to stop drinking. I, all kinds of stuff I was giving credit for, and I'm going, no. I went to sleep into a death sleep at night and don't remember nothing. And then I, I wake up about just before four o'clock in the morning, between 3.30 and four, I wake up and I'm going, oh, okay, kind of like, like out of body experience, I come back, right? And okay. But these people keep trying to say I did things, right? I mean, I had some major, major stuff that's in my books with things happen. So this, I kept trying to figure it out. I, went, I was on a talk show in Chicago with this uh, lady, Holly Campbell. And I was telling her the story. And I said, you know, I had this lady the other night. She sent me this message that I was in her room last night, at two o'clock in the morning, giving her advice. And she had a drinking problem and it helped her. And, and she was appreciative of me being there. And I'm going, and I said, and I said, I said, what kind of, I'm bringing in all the craziness of people. Everybody keeps doing this to me. She goes, that's not so crazy. You were, you were in my room the other night. And I go, okay, fine. So that was on my mind. I'm going, how could that be, right? Story after story after story. And people read my books and we'll see. I'm, I'm glossing over many great stories. But I'm at this veteran's house and he's living in a beach down in Venice Beach. And I'm staying in his spare room downstairs. And it's got a sliding glass door that goes outside the patio and there's a screen door. And I'm sleeping in this king-size bed. I'm zonked out. I'm in my, what I call the death zone. I mean, it's like boom, boom. And now it's three something in the morning. It's almost four o'clock, right? One of those death zones. I wake up and I look at the screen door and there's a shadow of a man standing at the screen door. Now, a normal person would go, oh my God, I'm in Venice Beach. It's probably a, a rapist, murderer, you know, thug. You know, what's going on? I'm just going, what the heck is this? You know, maybe, this, maybe my friend got kicked out of it. He got to fight with his wife. Maybe she kicked him out. And maybe he's coming down and coming through. Maybe he's, you know, needs, I don't know. So I just look at it and the screen door opens. This dark shadow of a man about my size comes towards the bed. And I go, oh, this is weird, man. I, I mean, I didn't do this. So I take a couple pillows and I put a pillow on the other side of the bed. And I said, you stay over there. And I move all the way to the edge of this king size bed on the other side, right? And next thing I know, I feel this bump, 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 bump on the bed. This body is just moving towards me. And all of a sudden, hits my spine. And my kundalini just goes crazy. It's like I got a helicopter inside. It's just, and lightning is just, it's like, and I'm just sitting up wide awake. And whatever that was, melted into my spine reunited me but it was like there was two of me because i'm do i'm awake while this is happening so it's like two bodies not like and so i've had this almost four o'clock in the morning experience many times and i didn't think twice about it that kind of got me going so i told my friend about it and he was kind of like well yeah, yeah sure and so i said i gave him some advice about his dad and his relationship and everything. And then I said, well, let's go to Self-Realization Fellowship to Lake Shrine. They got a lecture there today, you know. And so I get there and it wasn't on the program that the monk decided to do his own talk in his own way. And every word he said, just about word for word, was what I told this guy in the morning. He's looking at me and he goes, did you, did you read this someplace? Because it was like my talk I gave him in the morning about relationships. It was like, so I left there and about, Four years ago, I'm sitting in my sofa in the front room, and the phone rings. I get my, I get my cell phone. It rings, right? I pick it up. And I'm like, who's calling me at six o'clock in the morning, right? 
and it's this woman and she identifies herself, but I don't pay attention to it because I get calls from all around the world. I, 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 and she goes, I'm so-and-so and, and we want to thank you on behalf of, and she said the guy's name and, and it didn't ring any bells. She says, well, he gave you full credit for surrendering last night to the police. He didn't kill any more people. I'm going, I go, this is Reverend Bill McDonald. Yeah, this is Reverend Bill McDonald. He gave me your telephone number. Okay, fine. And then, so she goes this whole story about how he held off the SWAT team for 17 hours and everything. So I think, okay, this lady's crazy, right? So I said, well, thank you very much for telling me. I hang up. I turn on the morning news and there's this big story, 10 miles down the road in the town of Galt. And I live in Elk Grove. Just 10 miles down the road, here's this guy shot and killed. Uh, he was a veteran, Vietnam vet. PTSD, and they they were foreclosing his house, and they were picking up his dog or dogs. I don't know if they had two dogs or one dog, but they were taking it. They sent a dog pound to take his dog, and that was too much. His wife left him. Now they're taking his house. Now they're taking his dog. They didn't send anybody out to really talk rationally with him. And of course, he, he's beyond talking rationally at that point. Mm-hmm. And he took a shotgun, and he shot the hole through the door and killed the guy and wounded the other guy or something. And 17 hours, they had 100 and some cops there. It was a big deal. I never knew anything about it. But he told the police that I counseled him all night long and that I talked him into surrendering in the morning and giving up his weapons and not to hurt anybody. Now, a normal person would have wrote down the name of the lady and, and all this other stuff. I'm going, wow. So the only thing I can think of is some of the veterans I help at some veteran event, I must have gave him my card. He had my number. And either he, in this psychotic state he was in, believed I was talking to him, or because he was up with no sleep for a couple of days, maybe he was in that area of no sleep where you get kind of weird. But he stepped into Twilight Zone, and, and I was there with him for the whole night comforting him. All I know is I was in a death sleep and then I wake up and then he surrenders, right? So story after story after story like that, even a Father Jack LaRocca, I'll even give his name, Catholic priest. He was in Santa Clara, Silicon Valley. And uh, he was at the uh, St. Lawrence Church at the time. And I met him. The first time I met him, he was a prayer priest for my Sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law was dying of cancer. It was Thanksgiving. I show up there and I'm dressed casual with Levi's. I'm standing in the front yard and this guy pulls up in a Harley. I go, priest, right? In a Harley. I go, what is this? He was going around on Thanksgiving Day in his parish saying, bless the turkey, have a nice day, and he go to the next house, right? So he shows up in their driveway and he walks up and I'm standing out in the front lawn talking to my brother-in-law, Richard. And he walks right up to me like this, you know, and he says, you're, you're a priest. And I said, just kidly, I go, yes, but not this lifetime. I thought that would throw off Catholics don't believe in reincarnation, right? So then he says, no, he says, that's true. And I know who you were. And I have a message for you I've been carrying around since I've been four or five years old. Whoa. And he proceeded to tell me that when he was an orphan on Long Island, uh, he had these visions of me over and over and over again. But the visions of me he had was me at that age, 40-some years old. Because he's six months older than me. So when he was four or five, I was four or five, right? So he was having visions of me as an adult. And so he was visioning forward. And he said he'd been spending his whole life looking for me. And he had a message for me. And he says he went to Vietnam. I was in Vietnam where we missed each other. He went to Sacramento. I was in Sacramento after he left. And then he was in there in San Jose after I left San Jose to go to Sacramento. So we started going out there. Everywhere he went looking for me for whatever reason, threw him there. The paths were crossing, but different time frame, right? But then he shows up at, at my brother and sister-in-law at their house because he's a parish priest. So, so he takes me aside. He tells me who he the message he wanted to give me and who I was in this previous lifetime and why. And uh, so it's just another thing where people keep dreaming about me. I had a, had a foster girl that I picked up and she claimed that she 
she felt safe with me because when she was she was 17 when I picked her up, but when she was 12 and 13, she'd sing me and I talked to her and she felt she knew me. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, had a guy pick a hitchhiker I picked up. He was 22 years old and he claimed I saved his life. He was getting ready to commit suicide. So why I aren't you aware of all no, these stories? No. It would be a nice story if I could say, yes, I was in absolute control of all this. I did all this. I can't. All I can just say as an observer is I was in a deep state of sleep and, and, and I must be a heck of a dreamer because I got a life going on out there. Either that or I meet a lot of crazy people and they get crazy when they get around me. So it's, whatever the truth is, the truth is. But I know this much because uh, I don't like to say, I have to, I have to emphasize things. These are what people say. These are what people predict. These are what people did. I only can say for sure what I know, and that's just basically what I've personally experienced. And so I always like to emphasize that because people get, you know, and, I, and it's so easy to believe a lot of this stuff. And I'm really very, very careful because, you know, being a, a little Irishman that likes to tell tales and stories, I, I, I you know, I, I got to go, you know, I got to be, strict i mean i got to keep this thing strict I get, and the stories i tell got to be the best stories are ones where other people would like like if the guy could visualize he saw the light the other guy saw this the same see where i did so when i can verify a story with other people that's always the best stories to me i got beautiful stories that are hard to verify but i got stories that my guru is verified like i don't know how much time you got because i could go on we could do part two of this if you wanted to but it's it's like my first experience with Babaji, that I was able to recognize him for who he was. We were sitting around a campfire in 2009, 10, take your pick. One years after another in India, I've been there a bunch of years. So someplace in that time, one of those times at the ashram, I was there several months, and I was sitting around a campfire uh, with three, four people, and we were telling Spook stories, you know, ghost stories and stuff. Everybody's trying to scare everybody. Going off, the guru went to bed already. I hear his stories. So he went to bed. So we're sitting around this fire, letting him die out. And, and this guy's going, wow, when I, was, when I was doing drugs and alcohol, I saw all these crazy things, you know, and demons and stuff. And this other lady, she saw ghosts. And I go, look. And I, I meant this when I said it, but it was very arrogant. Very, very arrogant. Arrogance at a, at a sacred place is not a good, not a good combination. You know, it's like matches with the dry forest, right? So I go very arrogantly. Look, I've seen demons. I've seen the devil. I've seen combat. I've been blown up, shot up. I, I've seen the worst of life. I've seen the, I've seen it all. Nothing scares me. Nothing. I challenge the universe. Never a good thing. Never. Oh, what a cutie. That was, anyway. So nothing, this is a lesson for you when people are telling spooky stories. Never say nothing scares you. Sometimes things, the universe will take you up on your challenge. So anyways, I go back to this little hooch I'm staying at, bungalow, and I unlock the door, and I go in, and it's total dark. I open up the door, and I got my flashlight, and I shine my flashlight, and there sitting at the end of my bed is Babaji. Loincloth, bare legs, bare arms bare chest, long hair, but two eyes like laser lights coming out of them, like, ching, like, you know, you want to be scared, buddy? Ching! And I go, oh, and, I, and I, my heart goes like, I'm just like palatating, it's like pounding. And I got the flashlight and I throw it up like, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the movie 2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. You know, when the gorilla throws up the, the bone and it goes, the flashlight's doing that right here and it spins around the ground and I'm down there looking for a flashlight and I pick it up and my heart's going like that, and I shine the light, and he's gone, right? I go, thank God nobody saw that, because I just told everybody I'm not afraid of nothing, right? And I had the reputation, the, the, the guru calls me the general, you know, because I'm not afraid of nothing. You know, I'm the guy, anyway, this whole story on that. But anyway, so the general, I can't be scared of this stuff, right? So I'm thankful that nobody saw it. So the next morning, I'm walking across the ashram, and I heard this pattern of these little feet behind me, going off. And he comes up next to me and he goes, Beal. And I look at him and he smiles. He's getting ready to laugh. And he goes, I thought those things were supposed to scare you. I go, and then we get to breakfast. And he made me tell everybody what happened. No, nope, you tell. No, nope, you tell. No, nope, you tell. 
nope, tell your style. I'm like, Roger, nope, tell. So not only did everybody learn about it, <laughs> but everybody got a good laugh out of it, but it, it, it taught me about challenging the universe. You don't tell the universe nothing scares you. That's, it's, that's foolhardy. So the next time I have an encounter with Babaji, I had, I don't know if you've been looking at my nose. My nose was basically, most of it was cut off. This oh, was wow. for cancer. That's rebuilt with, that's my shoulder you're looking at. It's a beautiful it's, shoulder nose. Yeah, so I mean, and, and the story behind that is really interesting. That's where I'm going to go because it, it deals with Babaji again. Mm. And so I go in there for skin cancer checkup and they go on, well, you got to go get a biopsy done. They, get, you know, they cut off a big chunk and Next thing I go, oh, I get this notice. I got to go see two doctors. I go, why why do I got to go see a plastic surgery eye eye surgeon guy? So they send me this guy, probably the greatest surgeon ever was, but no bedside manner at all. I come in there and he looks at it and he goes, oh, this thing looks worse than I thought it was. This is really terrible. I go, what, what? I thought he was just coming in to, you know, they're going to cut a little stuff. And he says, and so so he gives me a shot. Pops the eye out, gives me a shot behind the eye so he can look. Yeah, shot down here. So he's looking in there. He wants to check out the whole area and see behind the eyeball. And he says, he says, when they open you up, you may have cancer not only for the whole nose, you may have cancer in the lips, the ears, the eyelids, uh, the eyeball itself behind it. You may lose an eye. You may use your lips. So anyway, by the time this guy gets through with me, in 15 minutes, he's telling me they might amputate my lips, my nose, eyelid two earlobes and and I'm going what and he says well when I cut and then when I rebuild the nose he says I'm going to cut your forehead in a big triangle and bring it down the bridge of your nose and then I'm going to take that and rebuild your nose so that but you don't have, to have several plastic surgeries after that because you'll have this big lump there and you'll have this big scar in the forehead and he goes okay next I go what what I'm sitting in the chair going what <laughs> what I'm going, holy cow, right? So I I go back out to my truck and I'm sitting in the cab of my truck and I'm just going, I have to admit, because I'm an upbeat guy, but for about 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes, I was like, wow, that's a heavy thing to take. Then finally I just go, you know, whatever it is, is. It gave me a hell of a story. If I got scars, hell, wear an eye patch, it looks cool. And, and a guy can get away with it, right? What difference does it make? If I have no lips, okay. No nose, okay. I accepted it. So then the next day I go to the, the doctor that's going to do the cutting of the nose. And the way they do it is they just cut little bits at a time. You go in there and they give you shots behind the eyeball, down in the nose, up here, five or six shots. And then they go and they cut. And then they send that to a lab. An hour later, they come back and say, okay, we still got cancer cut more so i kept doing that all day long which meant you went through the th- agony of the waiting room sitting for an hour waiting to go back in to get shots because the other stuff's worn off to get cut again and then every time they cut you they have a little torch that they burn it to stop the bleeding so every time you leave that room it's not like you're done okay now i'm done no you're waiting to go back in again so the <laughs> the doctor won't even show me what it looks like I said, no, give me a mirror. He says, no, no, you can't see. It's just a big hole in the face. I said, no, you got to show me. So he takes a picture and kind of flashes it and then takes it away. So I'm sending this to the other, doc- the other doctor. And I said, okay. He says, I'm giving you this pill, all these pills, right? And uh, 500, there was big, huge size of what's a bad drug everybody gets for pain now that everybody's hooked on? Uh, the Oxy. bad. Oxy. The biggest dosage, big bottle. He says, you're going to need this. I said, I don't take pain mill. This is this is before my classic heart surgery. You know, this is back when I didn't feel pain so much, right? And uh, he says, now nah, you'll need it. You'll, you'll need this. And I said, nah. And he said, no, you'll take it. He says, because in a half hour when the locals wear off, your face is going to feel like somebody's holding it on a barbecue because it's burnt. <laughs> I burned all the nerves. And it's and so he had bandages all over. So I took the, I took the medicine. So that evening I'm home and I tell my wife, you know, I'm really tired. You know, I spent all day getting cut up, right? And I said, I'm going to take a nap. 
So I go take a nap and I wake up from the nap and my pillow is soaked. My sheets are soaking wet. Blankets damped. I don't know what's going on. It's dark in my room. And I go, oh, damn it. I must have been, I must have been crying. What a whip. I usually take pain pretty good. What is this? I'm, am I crying that I wet everything? You know, just everything's. So I come downstairs. I tell my wife, I go, man. I said, the general was crying, I guess. I said, I said my pillow's wet. Sheets were wet. I said, I must have really been bawling. She goes, what? So I hear her up there. And then she comes downstairs in this whole laundry of bloody sheets, bloody pillow. <laughs> she says, you weren't crying. You were bleeding. I go, thank God. Uh, and then she thought I was really crazy. <laughs> Thank God. I said, no. I said, crying's okay. You know, but not me. I don't do that, right? I handle, but blood's good. Blood's good, right? So the next day, between three and four o'clock in the morning, just before I, up at that six o'clock in the morning, I'm going to go to the, start rebuilding the thing, plastic surgeon. The room lights up. I mean, the room lights up. It's eight feet by eight feet, the wall. And the wall is just like a huge sun. And it's right next to my bed. And I got this whole patch on this side of the face. So I'm looking at it with one eye. And it's not like, ooh, that's cool. And I get excited. I'm just going, yeah, of course. You know, I'm like, yeah, I, this, this is what I expect. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is normal. And then, a bare arm comes directly out of this ball of light. I mean, biblical, right? Like the writings on the wall, this hand comes right out and it just covers my face, the eye, the forehead and the nose. And it was like one million mothers that loved you beyond the wildest, all were hugging you. It was the most love that you could ever have. It was nothing but love. I don't know how long it lasted. At some levels, it was an eternity. On the clock, I don't know, maybe it was 20 minutes, I don't know. But it was just, and I felt gratitude. And I was ready for it. I go, whatever happens, I already surrendered to whatever the results were going to be. I'm going, I'm going to this guy, and I don't know what's going to happen, right? So we get in the car, we drive there, and the surgeon comes out and gives my wife, oh, I got to cut his forehead. I got to do this. I still might have to cut the ears. I still might have to do that. I might have to take part of the cheek. He's going, this diehard stuff, right? Going, and he had this chart. He showed my wife this chart, the graph of my face. He had the picture with the graph showing every square, you know, centimeter and all that stuff. And there's centimeter little micro squares. And, uh, and she was like, Oh my God, my husband's going to come back. I'm not even going to know him, man. It's going to be this monster. So I said, well, whatever it is, is I'm accepting whatever God gives me. No complaints. I'm grateful I'm alive. That's it. End of story. Right. And I had that beautiful thing in the morning with, with the hand. Right. So how could you argue? So I go into surgery and I wake up. My wife is just staring at me. She's really staring at me. And I'm going, holy cow, is it that bad? What happened? She goes, no. I want to talk to the surgeon. She made him bring the surgeon. And she tells her, what'd you do? You, you didn't cut the forehead. You didn't do the, he says, you know, it's really strange. But I've been doing this operation over 30 years the same exact way. But today, with your husband, I had this instant flash, this inspiration to cut his shoulder up and take a chunk of his shoulder and use it to rebuild his nose. He won't have to come back for any more, you know, unless he wants to, you know, I think he'd be okay. And I'm going, what? So there was like, I don't know, I say 68 stitches, it felt like that. I have no clue how many stitches, but there was stitches everywhere in the eyelid and all around. They, cause they had to rebuild, he rebuild around the tear duct all the meat around the tear duct, tear duct was sitting all by itself. So he repacked that with flesh from the shoulder. So this was a major job. I don't know. I understand any of it. All I know is like, what? So then he gives me another pill. This is only one day after the other guy gave me pills, right? 
Uh, oh, by the way, on the pills, when I, before I went to the bed, my wife says, you're not going to take those pills. You never take pills. I said, well, this pain is so bad. I, I think I'm going to take a pill. I had a pill in my mouth and I had a glass of water. And before that pill got down to my Adam's apple, the pain had gone away, right? I said a prayer to Babaji and I did nothing happened. I mean, there's no, no pain. So this day he gives me another bottle of pills and I'm going, no, nah. no, he says, take it. You're going to need it. This is really bad. So I don't take any. I get home. I go to bed that night. Now you got to realize I'm really bandaged up and everything. My wife is in another room because, you know, it's, that's hard on her. I mean, I'm just, so between three o'clock and four o'clock, boom, the room lights up again. Same exact sequence. Hand comes out, caresses. That's the only word I could use. Caresses my face. Love from head to toe. Vibrating. Love, 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 love. So the next day, I wake up and I feel pretty good. Ten days go by. And I go in to get the stitches out. You know, you ever have stitches in your eyelids before? They hurt when they come out, by the way, just for the record. All right, and the, and the new nose. But what happened was I went in, he kept staring at it, and he goes, I don't believe this. He says, I never had this happen before. I said, what's that? He said, new layer of skin has grown over all the stitches. I said, what do you mean grown over? No, new skin had grown over all the stitches. He had to actually cut them all out, which wasn't comfortable, but. Skin in 10 days covered. That's pretty fast growing skin. I mean, you get scab, how long does it take, right? Right. So I I get a call from my guru. He's in California, Northern California. He goes, Bill, can I come out? Me and my wife visit you. I go, yeah, sure. So he drives from the Bay Area from Foster City, drives all the way out here to Sacramento area. And, and you know what the traffic's like at the time of day he came at two or three o'clock, but he comes out. Now, when I looked in the mirror that morning before his telephone call, it still looked ucky. I mean, you know, it was healing, but it, it was still pussy and ugly. And you know, it was just, my wife couldn't look at it. So I thought, oh, well. So his wife comes and she's going, oh, man, she won't look at it. This bottle, this bottle, this personal bottle, was only had a little bit left of uh, castor oil. Castor oil. He says, you take that, and he says, I've had my finger on that thing, and I've been using it for scars, and you just take that, and they'll take care of the scars and the healing. Well, his word was good enough for me, and the fact that he touched it, and it was his personal one and used it, that made it even a better placebo. Uh, you know, I didn't need any more placebo in him just tell me it was going to be okay, right? That's good enough for me, right? Mm. So you can see by putting that on there, I had canceled a wedding invitation, the story goes on. I canceled a wedding invitation in Napa to go to it, and Grunoff was going to be there, and some friends were going to be there because I didn't want to show up looking like a monster and ruin somebody's. I didn't want to be a focus of attention at somebody's beautiful moment, right? And then it started looking really good, and I and I realized if I put an eye patch over my eye and it kind of kept the the sunlight off my eyelid and hid a little bit, and besides, it just looked really cool. I looked like a pirate. I was looking for an excuse to use the eye patch. That's the truth. And so I had this eye patch on black eye patch. And I, I said, I'm coming to the wedding. So I show up at the wedding and I got a black eye patch. And there's this pictures of me with a black shirt, my black hat, the black <laughs> eye patch sitting next to Gordoff. He's all in white, just classic. Anyway, we're sitting at this table, wedding table. And there's about nine people from the group around it. And Gordoff goes, it's the middle of nothing. He goes, Bill. By the way, that story that uh, happened to you the other night, twice, I can't remember me ever telling him, but he goes, it happened to you twice. And I'm going, yeah. He says, that wasn't a dream, wasn't delusions, wasn't a vision. It was real. And it was the big boss. Now, when he says the big boss, he means it's his big boss is Babaji. So he told all those people at the table that it was real and it was Babaji. So it was kind of like verifying my experience for me. It was like, wow, it's, I mean, you know, he doesn't normally verify anybody's experience. I mean, because 
you know, most people don't need the ego and stuff, but he verified it. I thought how kind that was, but it was like, and there I was, <laughs> of course, I, I, I enjoyed the patch. I, I was wearing the patch. I kept wearing the patch after long after I should not be wearing it. And then my wife goes one morning, she goes, is that patch on the wrong eye? I go, Oh yeah. <laughs> so that's my last day wearing the patch. I was just, I just thought it was so cool. It was, it was a, I was wanting to be a pirate anyway. So that's an Irishman in me. I, I got, so that was two more times I saw Babaji. And it, it directly ended up in a healing. First time was a lesson. Don't brag. Don't challenge the universe. The next time was surrender. Accept what is. It's your karma. Accept it. Be grateful. Whatever it is, it is. And it all turned out okay. And then the other time was at the hospital after all the surgery. And I decided, okay, I'm staying and helping everybody that I got a blessing. I won't talk about any of That's the only times I want to talk about that are kind of verifiable to some degree. But um, I'm sharing those because people don't realize that Babaji is more than just some birthless guru, master avatar. He's so much more, so much more. And uh, his energy, the love there is, well, that's it. It's all love. And that's what keeps me going forward. That's what my, people say, what's your mission in life? What's your task? I'm working for them. And so if I, quote, unquote, help somebody, I don't. I'm just a conduit. I make myself available as a tool. I'm nobody special. I'm loved. And I just want that love to flow through to others. Simple as that. I'm not a guru. I'm not a master. Uh, I'm not Houdini. I'm not nothing. I'm a spiritual cheerleader. I'm here to inspire others through things that happened to me. And I believe they've happened to me, not just for me. Because there's some beautiful people out there that have been meditating faithfully, doing everything, serving, loving, and nothing ever happens. And they go, how come nothing ever happens? And I tell them, that is such great faith for those that nothing happens, no gifts of all that mystical stuff. And yet, every day you're faithful in love to the divine and you go into meditation. How much of a greater blessing is that? That is a true spiritual person. The person that does and does and does and gets nothing, but does it anyway. It's easy for me to be whatever, you know, because no matter what I do meditation-wise, it all works. Whatever I do, it all works out. But for the people out there that are working at this, I want to tell them they're loved. And there's no effort ever goes unpaid. Every effort leads eventually to the light. And if things are happening to me in the greater sense, since we're all one, it's happening to them as well. And if they're reading my books, and if they read the books, if they read the books, because I journey, and it's like one emotional spiritual story after another. There's not a lot of connecting things. I just go right straight to stories. Because I want people to realize that this whole thing's a flow of energy. And if you wake up and smell the roses, you realize we're all flowing back to the source. And then if you work up even further and you really wake up, you realize that we are the source. And as soon as you stop separating yourself from that and get rid of the ego and all the bodies, I don't care if it's a physical body, an astral body, causal body, rainbow body, light, a body of light, they're all bodies. As long as you got a body, you got an ego. You got an self-identification. Well, you no longer have that. You're God. But you already are God. In fact, me and you talking right now, in the future now, a parallel universe that's happening right now, we're looking back at this and said, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yes, yes, Bill, that's absolutely true. There we are. We're basking in the light. Because we are the light. And as we meditate, 
and, and that's what's important about meditation. People forget about, they get involved in mechanics. So it's a love affair. It's all a love affair. It's a divine love affair. When you go into meditation, it's about loving God. And if you love God, you love yourself, you love your neighbors, you love your enemies, most especially. You love those people that need it the most. It's so easy for us to judge others and, you know, and all these homeless people and they're, you know, they got drugs on the street in San Francisco. And oh, I got, by the grace of God, there we were or are. A part of us is there. Empathy. So they are our brothers and they are our sisters. They are us. And when you start thinking like that, the separations between people disappear, between animals and us disappear, between trees and nature and the sky. As my Native American friends go on about, it's all one, nature, right? The mother nature and all that. Well, it's, it's bigger and all that. It's, it's everything. So when we meditate, don't seek anything. Don't seek enlightenment. Don't seek peace. Don't seek things. Just give love. And in the end, what you're really seeking will find you. You don't have to go look it. God is looking for us. Babaji is looking for us. We're out there chasing him down. I want to see Babaji. I want to see Babaji, all these new people. I want to see Babaji. Well, if you have that desire, probably not going to happen. It's, you're chasing something you're reaching for. Go after love. Let the gifts come as they may. Gifts do come when you meditate. Think about your meditations. Think about that experience you had in your book. I'll mention it again. In this wonderful book for your body and your mind as well. You talk about a spiritual experience you had. You can label it anything you want. You can label it samadhi. You can maybe, maybe perhaps it's rainbow body. Maybe it was different. People will give you, oh, it's this, that. You know, labels. Forget labels. You had an experience of love where the borders between you and the oneness out there, the source, dissolve to varying degrees depending on how far you've expanded it. And it's not about, it's like when I had my rainbow body experience, which I write about in my first book here. Um, I thought I was traveling. You know, it's all these lights and planets and stuff. I thought I was traveling. And then about 30 years after I had the experience, I realized I wasn't traveling anywhere. I was expanding. My consciousness was expanding in all directions. That's what happened to you when you're, supernova experience basically you very modestly bless your heart very modestly really talk about it you humbly just kind of throw it out there or something to inspire but you don't nail it you don't beat it up you don't fly it on a flagpole there it is i read that and could feel it and said no this is something bigger than she's saying and that's a beautiful thing that you could say it like that because what you're truly doing is what they teach you. You reach samadhi, you have a, a spiritual state like that. What does the guru tell you? Sweep the floor, cut firewood, go fetch water. You go on. And in your book, you kind of do that. You kind of, you take us there, but then you go, okay, let's, let's get back on track. And it's not just about me, it's about us. And you take people on this journey with your book to their own healing. And you point out this placebo effect, which is really beautiful because the placebo effect is our, our love. Our, it's, if you believe love cures you, it cures you. If you believe whatever it is, that's why there's all these near-death experiences and they all have different experience. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus is gonna be there. If you want your dog there, your dog, dead dog there. If you want your grandparents there, they'll be there. But if you're Buddhist, you'll have a different experience. If you're Hindu, you'll have a different near-death experience. They're all right. The divine gives you what satisfies your heart. The divine is more than willing to carry on this divine dance with you. So however you expect that heaven to be on the other side is what you get. And if you expect hell, and some people find it's like hell on the other side, they, you know, that's what they find. But in reality, 
The only thing that separates us is our egos. We are one. Even now I'm looking at my screen. I can touch my screen and say, there you are. But in the real world, I can do that by eyes closed, and I can touch you by thinking about you. When you think about your daughter, when you're not there, you're touching her. her. Your energy is there with her. Sometimes during the day when you're working, oh, how's she doing? Is she, is she okay? You know, you're there with her. Child that age, sensitive enough to feel it. They know they're being loved from afar. And there is no distance. I, I remember people going, well, how fast do you travel in this rainbow body? And I'm thinking, well, it's faster than the speed of light. Well, you can't fast faster. Yes, you can. There's instantaneous. There's thought. I could think across the universe. Somebody read my mind. They got it. There's no time. There is no time. That's an illusion. So traveling faster than the speed of light is an illusion because there is no time. If you think you're on the other side of the universe, you're there. That's why. That great book that both of us have read uh, about the upside down thinking. Yes. Okay, Thank you, Mark. Mark. If you're listening to this, Mark, Mark Gober's amazing book. Because, because what he does, he takes his book, and, and unlike me, who's storyteller Irishman, he gets he gets those academic people to go, "Hey, take a look at this, guys. This is what you got to look at, and here's the data to show it." And prove it and you you tell me anyway so there's people out there there's an awakening going on especially in northern california especially the bay area and up grass valley nevada city sacramento area davis i mean this whole part of california right now has a real awakening going on. you're sensitive enough you feel it you're drawn to it uh and you're in a beautiful area i mean i mean uh, i mean spashable petaluma nevada Santa Rosa, all that area up there, it's beautiful. There's an energy there. And all the refugees from the city of San Francisco are going there because San Francisco is <laughs> changing. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's changing. It's getting more material, earthy, more in-your-face world. So I want to bless you for writing your book. And... And, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm willing to come back because I honestly, we're, we're touching the tip of the iceberg here. I feel unfortunately that. for me, there is no off switch. I just continue to go. I don't need a question. And I, I follow my intuition. I just, like when I give a keynote address, I'm, I got several of them coming up and I've given all the time I give a keynote address and people go, well, we want you to tell this to this. And I go, no, I don't do requests. No, no, no. We're, we're flying in. We want, no. If you want me, then just trust me that I will give you what you need. Yeah. I don't know what you want. So I go out and look at an audience and I sense and feel. Yes. Before I even open my mouth, I usually walk up there and I kind of, people think it, because most speakers, they're in a big hurry to get going. Let's, let's, let's roll it, right? Then they go, ah, yeah. And they just keep going. Me, I go up there and I just, I'm looking for those faces and I want to read what it is that that group needs. And I'm trusting in the divine, the universe, that when I open my mouth and speak, whether it's for an hour and a half, three hours, I spoke for eight hours, workshops, whatever it is, when I open my mouth, what needs to be heard is said. And there's a part of me that's up here going, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to say that. Right. I'm entertained as well. And when I look at the video later on, I'm going, where'd that come from? Yeah. I don't censor it. I don't filter it. Yeah. I just go with what is. Yeah. You are so easy to read. I'm sorry. Right now, you've let your heart open up. and You're so easy to read, so I'll stop. I will stop eavesdropping on you but I, i'm not seeing anything bad i'm just i'm eavesdropping on your heart and i'm just seeing such beautiful things uh, keep doing what you're doing you're reaching people 
And believe it or not, even though doing this show, it sometimes, yeah, I got another show. I got this chunk of my time. I got my kid. I got this stuff to do. Doing this, you're allowing Babaji and other masters and other people with other messages to filter their messages out there through this media. And around the world, you are allowing voices to be heard. And you're not like some interviewers trying to take over anybody's conversation. You will, I've watched your videos. You, you set it up. You allow people to give their message. And it's multiple messages. It's interesting. You've had all kinds of people on there, and nobody's had the same exact message. Everybody's delivered the same thing. But the bottom line is one underlying undercurrent. Love. You know that. Your people say it. You feel it. They may call it something else. You know, Mark calls, you know, consciousness and all this stuff. He's talking love. He knows it. It's all love. Sorry we're picking on you, Mark. But, uh, so I, I hope that uh, I get a chance when I'm out in your neighborhood. I'll, I'll give you one of my tags when I come out there. We'll, we'll have to get together. And when you read my books, we'll have a talk. But don't be in a hurry. One thing good about my books, I wrote them story at a time. So three pages, four pages, you got a story. And you can stop. You, you don't have to remember what I said there. You go to the next story. It's got nothing to do with that story. But if you read them in order, you'll see there's a, a rhythm. There's a rhythm to the energy. There's a pulsating current. And if you look, if you live long enough, I know you're still a young lady, don't even have a gray hair, it's amazing. So pulsating energy that permeates your life. And when you get to be almost 74, and you look back and you say, you know, there was not, nothing bad that happened to me. People, oh no, I read your book, you had all this. I go, no, everything was supposed to happen. I'm not upset at all. Everything that was supposed to happen, happened. And it got me to where I'm at right now, in this time, in this space, in this place, and in this grace. And I also realized that what I knew at 25 and 35 and 55 and 65 and 70 and yesterday may not even be relevant to how I'm feeling tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That I keep emptying the cup. So it could be refilled. And if you're just drinking coffee all the time, you never tasted tea or different kinds of tea. You got to empty the coffee to taste tea, right? Hey, that's new. I never tried tea. So philosophically, spiritually, whatever way you want to look at it, the only thing that's going to remain with you through all those years is love and the power of love, who you loved. And it's multiplied. Think about putting money in the bank. You work a job, you work extra job, you work overtime, you keep extra money away so you can buy a house. What happens to everything you did? You're putting away love. All this stuff is like a bank. You're putting all this love in a bank. It pays the greatest dividends. It'll return so much to you and to others. But you're not doing it for anybody but others. And that's what makes it so beautiful. It's, it's the most selfish thing you can do is to love and help others. So we had planned for this to be an hour conversation. It turned into an incredible hour and a half journey of timelessness. And um, thank you so much for the kind words you've said about my book also. Um, you saw past all the camouflage, the intention behind it, the heart behind it. And thank you for seeing everybody that way. You know, I wish um, I wish we could all learn that skill of seeing truly the the, the divine in all of us. Um, Some of the people that I love the most think so little of me. They would consider themselves if they asked, if, "Yeah, he's my enemy. I don't like the guy. He's who he's full of himself or whatever." They got opinions. I loved him the most. They keep me humble. And I just try to give them love. And um, we all need, we all need that critical mass of people out there that inspire us to be humble, 
to change, to evolve, and realize that it's not about us, it's about them. Whether they accept it or not makes no difference. I mean, Jesus, how'd he spend his last days? They crucified him. I mean, how more loving can you be? And they killed him, right? And, and then he goes out and he heals 10 blind people, right? 10 blind guys. And only one came back, one, 10%, said, thank you. Only one. Now, if Jesus is only rating a 10% rating of approval rating, uh, <laughs> if, if we get 1% of the people out there, if we get our own children like us, hey, great, chalk it up as a victory. Mm. Um, it's, it truly is a beautiful world. I see things getting better. Even if, it, even if it people, they point out, oh, we got crazy president, we got crazy Democrats, we got crazy this, crazy that. There's all this stuff happening. We're just and I'm going, no, go back to World War One. Go back to World War Two. atomic bombs. Go back to Korean War. Go back to Vietnam. Things are better. It's all evolving. And the fact that people don't want to have wars anymore, it's a beautiful thing. That's all good things. But we are getting better. Eventually, we're going to end up, all of us, on top of the mountain. As I try to tell people, find your guru, find your master, find your ascended master, find your teacher, find whatever it is that's going to lead you. Call him a Sherpa. You know, Mark would appreciate that. Call him a Sherpa. <laughs> and you take it to the top of, of uh, Mount Everest, right? We're all on the same rope. Different lanes. Some people are near the top. Some people are summited. But, you know, eventually, you're tied to the rope. Nobody's going to forget about you. You can't fall off and disappear. You're tied to that rope. Some people might be down the valley. But the ultimate destination of these little pieces of God, which we are, is to have all the pieces come home. It's all about going home. This is not home, this life. So to wrap up this incredible conversation that could continue for lifetimes, I was going to say days, <laughs> but infinite lifetimes. Can you tell us how to keep in touch with you and follow your work? Yeah. All right, let's, let's do it really easy. The best way to get a hold of me, I got a website, www, which everybody has, right? But Rev Bill McDonald, no dot, just R-E-V-B-I-L-L-M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D.com. Just okay. Rev Bill McDonald. I'll put that you in there. go there, and then they could find my, if you want to go to my Facebook page, Rev Bill McDonald on Facebook, send me a friend request, uh, and they'll find my email address. Believe it or not, I do. I get about a thousand email a week, but I do try to respond to everybody. And if I can't send a real lengthy response, I send them love. I, I send them love and a prayer and maybe just a kind word. But I try not to ignore anybody. If they're taking the time to send me something, I try to, to validate their spiritual question and who they are. But yeah, I'm open to anybody. Anybody wants me to come talk to the group, I'm always good. Anybody wants to help me with veterans, always looking for volunteers. But my thing is, be kind. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to your family, which is the hardest sometimes, because they're the greatest judges of us. <laughs> they know us the best or the worst. And when you look in the mirror, know that you're loved. And it's a reflection in that mirror of not just you, but a composite of everyone. So see that out there. That's it. So my last question in the show always is, what is the single most important thing? Because we have journeyed through all kinds of amazing stories. There's a lot of beautiful insights and wisdoms and so much for us to take to heart. But if you could just distill all of this into one simple essence, maybe even one word or mantra that we can take home and really cultivate within ourselves, what is it? Love, love. Seriously, the old warrior is all about love. Start with yourself. Just love. Let it flow. It's never ending. You never, you never give it all away. Thank you so much, Reverend Bill.
Thank you. That was an amazing conversation filled with magic and surprise and wisdom. And um, I think not just what we learned from hearing your amazing stories, but how we all felt in our hearts and the transmission that was part of your stories. Thank you so, so much. So much gratitude for you, Reverend Bill. God bless. Hi, friends. Did you love that interview? If you did, please leave a review and share with all your friends so that many more people can benefit from these game-changing insights. You can also go onto our website, dredithubuntu.com, and subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive free trainings and next-level ninja tools that we only share on our newsletter. Together, let's turn your life into a brilliant masterpiece.